Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cole. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we think about international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to focus on one of the major problems in uh, international uh, relations right now, and that is the uh, emergence and disruptions that come from uh, populist regimes and from nationalism as a force in, 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 in politics in many places around the world. And this intersects with some of the things we've talked about before in, in uh, I, I think, quite a, a challenging way. Simon, you've often talked about the way in which the problems we face in the 21st century are problems that need cooperation, problems that need collaboration. And yet, pretty clearly, nationalism and populism are political forces that pull away from collaboration, that look for uh, virtuoso politicians to fix problems by themselves and and without pitching in with international institutions and uh, irritating foreigners. Yes. And indeed, that's my my objection uh, to those forms of politics, that they're risky in the sense that they tend to argue against international collaboration. Uh, And yet we do live in an age where most of the challenges, many of them existential challenges that humanity is facing today, depend absolutely on international cooperation and collaboration uh, to to fend them off. So my objections are not so much classic objections of political style or uh, or of dogma. Um, They're more practical objections. Any political stance that argues against international collaboration is dangerous for humanity, I would argue. And and where do you think the most serious damage has been done from the current round of populists? Well, I think an enormous amount of harm was done was done by President Trump in the United States, because, of course, um, having a a populist, a nativist indeed, um, at at, at the helm of the world's most powerful nation has, of course, to a great extent, legitimized and given permission uh, to other would-be populists and nativists and rabble-rousers of every stripe uh, to, to, to follow the same route. I mean, people do often talk about a rising tide of nationalism. And whilst I don't want to sound complacent, history does suggest, doesn't it, that populism of various sorts is an experiment that is tried on a regular basis yeah. in most countries from time to time. And in a, populism is a word we really we really have to dissect quite carefully because it's often used in a in a very loaded way. I think when we you and I, for example, when we use a term like populism, what we're really talking about is the the style of governance that is directed towards gaining power. Indeed, saying whatever the population appears to want to hear in order to elect an individual to power without giving any particular concern to whether the governance that then results is good governance, whether it's good for the country in the longer term. So if that's what we mean by populism, that is um, a recipe that a lot of countries are flirting with. Having said all that, the last thing I would argue for is to take away from a population the right to choose by democratic means whatever form of government the majority wants to try. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the last thing I would do is go to a country other than my own and say, you shouldn't be having this form of government, even though you voted for it, because that would be undemocratic. But the traditional pattern that we're all used to seeing is the populist leader who quite often on the basis of some quite careful research or maybe just good instincts discovers where are the sensitive spots. It always happens when people are suffering. It always happens in difficult moments in history when people start to think that maybe their children won't be as well off as they were. Things are going, are going in right. other words, in the wrong direction. Right. That's the moment when a, a populist leader can pretty easily get elected just by reflecting the population's anger back on them by saying the same things that they say to each other. Uh, traditionally, what we find, and again, this may sound complacent, but what we often find is that those populist leaders then once elected and thrown into the real challenge of having to govern a state and to govern the entire population, not just the people who voted for that particular leader, very often then their real skills or abilities or the lack of them become apparent. And Mm -hmm. therefore, what generally happens then is they don't last very long. And I suppose in one sense, one doesn't want to oversimplify a very complicated situation. But Trump is is an example of that. He got voted Mm -hmm. by reflecting the legitimate anger and disappointment and fears of a substantial chunk of the population. But when it came to running the country well, competently, fairly and for everybody, he fell short and therefore didn't get reelected. And generally speaking, that's what happened. Yes, and almost immediately went to a kind of a conspiracy discourse where the only reason he wasn't succeeding is because there was a conspiracy against him. Of course, which is a which is a classic populist trope. Yeah, indeed. But there does seem to be a a, a pendulum where mm. uh, politics swings from un- the unilateralism of populism, nationalism. Towards uh, the other other side, a, a kind of a collaboration, global thinking, and 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 you know, one of the questions that comes from all this for me is, what are the implications of a populist ascendancy? What are the implications of that for for natural cosmopolitans? Do you do you see? Do you think there's a kind of split between natural cosmopolitans at one end of a spectrum? You know, you've talked about how many people have that kind of feeling in the world. Is there an equal and opposite or a greater and opposite camp uh, who will always look to a, a national solution? I think the, the people who look to a national solution and regard their identity as the citizen of a specific nation are in the vast, overwhelming majority of people around the world. And in fact, if we go a little bit further, and rather than talking about people whose identity is national, we talk about conservative views more broadly. The conservatives outnumber the liberals on the planet by, uh, oh, 10 to 1. Mm-hmm. Um, no question about it. I've, I've had a look at this using the relevant question from the Nation Brands Index. You can quite easily convert it in by using some of the questions into a kind of conservative versus somewhat more progressive or liberal outlook. And it's very clear that around about 80% of the world's population is what you or I would describe as fundamentally conservative in the sense that they think that people like them are more trustworthy and more reliable and better to associate with than people who are unlike them, that their own country is better and safer and more admirable than other people's countries that the past is generally better than the present or the future, um, and so on and so forth. Now, why such a large majority? Well, because I think in some ways that's a natural, almost you might say evolutionary mindset. Mm -hmm. 
because by definition, the things that you've done in the past, if you're still alive, didn't kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore, uh, they are more reliable than the things that you haven't done right. before, because they might kill. Um, and so, uh, especially again, as I said before, in times of fear or difficulty or discomfort, it is absolutely a human instinct uh, to trust the people who are most like you and the things that worked before, or at least didn't fail dramatically in the past. Where it starts going wrong is where uh, populists or society in general. Uh, starts to sell a version of the past that's fundamentally misleading, at romanticizing the past and trying to sell people a very easy thing to sell, which is this notion that things were better in the past. And you as a historian will be very, very familiar with this, with this notion, this sentimentalization of, of past ages, because that's a route into uh, populist support. And it's often very misleading. Certainly. And I think part of the function of a historian is to rain on parades. And as long as we do mm. that honestly and uh, don't mm. only critique the official versions of history of people that we dislike, uh, I, I think that that's mm. a useful thing to do. Yes. What, what's, what's so extraordinary, so something really worth reminding ourselves of is how the what are often called liberal values of tolerance and collaboration, international uh, perspective, cosmopolitanism, and so on and so forth, how extraordinarily, overwhelmingly potent they've become uh, in, in recent decades, despite the fact that they're espoused by a really quite significant minority of the world's population. Um, the liberal project, if you want to make it sound like a, uh, like a conspiracy, has been stunningly successful. And... Um, you know, we've all seen data showing changing attitudes in from sure. country to country to country, showing how, for example, acceptance of minorities, um, uh, notions of gender equality, issues like this have changed beyond recognition in our own lifetimes, in country after country after country. By but no I means the irony is that you give it a few years and then that's that's what you're trying to conserve, you know, the, because that's what mm. you grew up with. Yes. So and. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struck uh, living in super liberal California, how uh, kids growing up here just assume that marriage is for people who love each other rather than for specifically for male and female exclusively. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting uh, and, and that will be the that will be the reality that they seek to conserve, not some. Um, yes imagined thing of people wearing pilgrim fathers hats or what whatever the orthodox historic view is in, inherited um but i you know I, I i think if we start to think about the impulse to conserve or the 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 uh, the impulse to look after your own place as a kind of a reflex that then might go to why there isn't a a, a really obvious international interconnection between mm. populists now there has been some of that uh, i think but I, mm. I i i'm i don't think that there's a um that the people who have these nationalist feelings necessarily automatically admire the people in another place who are also nationalist maybe some of the leaders find it yeah. easier to work together uh, how, how are you seeing it play out i suppose trump had had his, had his sort of ongoing bromance with uh, bolsonaro mm -hmm. and with modi and of course with with putin 
but hmm. maybe it's the nature of nationalism that the United States or regular American citizens didn't rush to embrace hmm. uh, conservative Russians or uh, conservative Indians in a in a kind of a, a, a populist international. Hmm. Well, what I see in the research is that there's a great there's a great deal of admiration for strong individual leaders. So uh, amongst more conservative respondents around the world. So if, if, you, if you ask people what they think about a, a strongman leader, whether it's a Trump or a Duterte or Bolsonaro or somebody like that, then you find, as you would, as you would expect, that the people with conservative tendencies tend to express admiration for the strength of that leader and say, he, he's doing a good job. It's nearly always a he. Um, and yet perhaps not unexpectedly, when you ask them to talk about how they view another country that is nationalist, they don't like it. Right. And the reason why they don't like it is because the last thing that a nationalist population wants is other populations to be nationalist in their own <laughs> right. interest. Because that so, so so predominantly nationalist populations want other countries to be liberal. <laughs> yeah. We're heading into then a paradox of nationalism. <laughs> yes, yes, where you can only ever think that nationalism and populism are a good idea to a point, and you may have leader yes, envy, right? And I think we've seen this mm. a little bit that there's a kind of leader envy going on. Oh, I wish we had. And mm. I've I've heard this on, on and seen this on conservative sites where people have said, "Oh, that Putin, he doesn't put up with any nonsense." Mm. You know what an mm. admirable, <laughs> mm. but. Very few people yeah. say, "Ah, oh, those Russians." That's so. Uh, and maybe they should. Maybe you know. I think there are plenty of admirable things about about uh, um, uh, Russia, but the present politics is not one of them for me. Anyway, absolutely. I, I, I mean, let's let's say it once and once and for all. Um, I think most of us, the vast majority of us, if we're absolutely honest about it and look deeply into our own hearts, we will find that we're not actually really liberal through and through or conservative through and through that if we were absolutely honest and scrupulously objective about it we'd probably find that we all have some sympathy for some conservative values and some sympathy for some liberal values in other words we're individuals and we're complex mm -hmm. and um the 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 current uh, fascination and tempted to say hysteria for uh, identifying people via their group identity by saying, I am this, I am a liberal, I am a conservative, I am gay, I am white, I am whatever it is. It's just, just a very, very gross way of talking about human beings. You lump them together in a big category, and it's just laziness. It's just easier to talk about people like that. I say that you're white, and therefore I've dealt with you. I say that he's black, and therefore I've dealt with him. And that way you don't have to get concerned with the impossible complexity of individual character and upbringing and nature and intelligence and outlook and views and beliefs and values and all the rest of it. It's sheer laziness. And so we like to typecast, we like to tribalize, we like to pretend that there are simple distinctions between large groups of people and we can belong to one or we can belong to the other. And it makes all of us very unhappy because at heart, none of us accept those over simple uh, distinctions because we know that for us, they don't apply. They're not that, we're not that simple. And um, a very good example of that at the moment is this distinction which has been emerging now for several years between the so-called localists and the so-called globalists. If you're a conservative, you also have to be a localist. In other words, you have to care about your own immediate environment 
and you're not supposed to care about the world or the planet. That's none of your business. Definitely not other countries because they're foreigners, they're enemies, and they can look after themselves just as your country should look after itself. And this, I think, is a very, very dangerous idea. Um, but it's also a ludicrous idea because how can you possibly be one or the other? I don't think I've ever met anybody in my life who is 100% localist or indeed 100% globalist. I, I'm somebody who would classically be identified as a globalist because I worry all the time about the SDGs and the grand challenges and the planet as a whole. But the reality of the matter is I care just as much about the tiny village I live in as any localist will. And anybody who stops to think about it will say, of course I'm both. And that, um, that um, localist who I, as a globalist, am supposed to hate and spend all my waking hours hurling hatred at on social media. This is not a member of a different tribe. It's just me on a different day. Mm -hmm. And the sooner that we recognize that, mm -hmm. the better for human development, I think. These categories are, are, are nothing but trouble. And if only we could acquire the, the, the moral energy to start thinking about people a little less as types or groups or tribes, and a little more as individuals, the better we'd all get uh, No, on. indeed. Um, but the question that comes up for me is whether nationalism is a transferable form of soft power, whether there, um, you know, often, you know, the, the, the US and the UK talk about promoting human rights around the world and that if they promote human rights, they will be, it's good for the country that the country will be admired or be, you know, this has been the, the Canadian strategy for decades. Mm -hmm. The flip side of that, where uh, a country takes a position that's protective of traditional culture, and a good example would be mm -hmm. Russia and its legislative limits on speaking, teaching about LGBT issues, mm -hmm. which looks like state sanctioned homophobia and i know putin has has said something oh but remember everybody these people are russians so we you know we shouldn't be too hostile but we must you know hate the hate the sin not the sinner kind of uh, argument but it, you know i'm, I'm not really conv convinced by that it looks an awful lot like scapegoating do you think that these positions are taken as a form of international signaling, an attempt to provide a kind of inverse leadership uh, in the way that uh, the West might try to take a lead promoting uh, LGBT issues mm. um, that um, some other places are trying to take a lead in combating LGBT rights. Well, oddly enough, I had this conversation with Vladimir Well, I Putin. happen to know um, that, so I'm going to be interested <laughs> to... So yeah, well, anybody else who's read, read <laughs> and I, I actually, I actually mentioned to him this 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 bit of uh, research I'd, I'd done based on on the on the NBI that showed that eighty percent of the world's population is predominantly conservative, and um, and he said yes, he said that's more or less what I would have expected, and um, as far as I'm concerned, America is um, um, can keep the twenty percent of liberals. Um, that it's interested in being the leader of, give me the 80% any day. The, the way the conversation went was we, we were discussing why is it, in fact, that such a vast majority of the world's population seem to have these uh, predominantly conservative values. And it's basically because the vast majority of the world's population is either poor uh, or uh, religious um, or uneducated or a combination of the three. 
And that may sound dismissive, but it's not. Those are, to, to a great degree, um, the drivers of conservative views, because those are the views that follow most naturally from uh, not having a great deal of um, further education, not having a great deal of money or access to learning or access to media or access to information about the rest of the world. And, uh, and indeed, most religions tend to um, create a worldview that trusts the past. Most religions are rooted in the idea that good was created in the past mm -hmm. and we should aim backwards. Yes, therefore. and if you aim backwards well enough, something good will happen forwards. Yes, yes. So um, I think that, uh, I think in answer therefore to your question, there is um, a, a deeply rooted and to some extent justified belief um, in Putin and, and his government um, that by appearing to stand internationally for traditional values, Russia gets a good deal of support. It's not enough to make it a universally admired country um, because at the same time, it's often uh, a country that behaves in an aggressive or hostile way to neighbors. And that's, as you know, in the Nation Brands Index, the unforgivable sin. Uh, countries that, that, uh, that invade other countries that perpetrate acts of violence outside their own borders are simply not tolerated. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, Russia is admired. And um, you find people almost everywhere in the world who will say quite nice things about Russia and quite nice things about those kind of conservative leadership traits wherever they're found. Find plenty of people who have expressed a strong admiration for the, for the Chinese government as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, there really isn't, um, to any great degree, a global liberal consensus that only likes the liberal politicians and universally despises mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the the right wingers. It's not like that. Yeah, all. but but um, there's surely there's a paradox here because uh, why would a, a nationalist country uh, even care about what foreigners think? And yet they they seem to be very wrapped up in uh, wanting to be admired, caring about uh, in, international opinion. You know, in fact, I, I often think that the Chinese government mm. is desperate to give its population the gift of the admiration of the world as if this has become a key um, indicator of um, th their legitimacy. Um, we, we, you know, yes. only socialism with Chinese characteristics can generate this kind of admiration. Uh, mm. Trust us uh, with, with, with your future. We're uniquely able to uh, attract the admiration of the world. Yes, and 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 this this sense of pain, this sense of humiliation, is common to almost all the countries around the world that that, that suffer from a broadly negative international reputation. Um, whether you're talking about the Arab world, whether you're talking about Russia, um, it's it's the, the the story of their great pain that the world doesn't understand them, doesn't appreciate them, doesn't doesn't know their history, doesn't know the glories of their past and their mm. culture and all the rest of it. And one of the promises that, as you say, uh, these these leaders make to them is we will restore our country to its correct place uh, in the international um, order. And right. um, if we can't get people to admire us, we'll get them to fear us. Don't you worry. Either is fine. Right. Um, and, and it's it's funny. Uh, it's ironic because, of course, everything that they do as populist leaders in order to try and achieve that has exactly the opposite effect. Because as nationalist leaders, the very last thing they want to do uh, is to do something to help humanity fight climate change or help the world fight modern day slavery or whatever it is. 
And yet those are the only things that work. We've seen over the years with the Nation Brands Index that almost the only way that a country can damage its international reputation is by reaching out beyond its own borders and apparently deliberately harming another state or another another group. That's that's been a problem for the United States when it's done interventionist things. When it's invaded Uh, other countries on a regular basis. That's China's problem this year. Tragically, the perception is that China reached out beyond its borders and infected the world with the pandemic because people were looking for a country to blame and they found uh, blame in China. Now, you say to yourself, okay, so that's the way that a country can damage its image. What's the opposite of that? What's the opposite of reaching outside your borders and harming another nation or harming the planet? Well, obviously, doing something to help another nation or help another planet. So, you know, if if uh, if Vladimir Putin or the um, or the Chinese government really did want to raise the world's esteem of their country, they don't do it by saber rattling because that puts people off. The way that they do it is by working together with the international community. China seems to have understood this, by the way, because uh, the way that China uh, works so closely and so enthusiastically, much more so than America in recent years, with the uh, international system. Uh, the multilateral agencies, the United Nations, and so on and so forth, suggest that they understand very well that what the world wants in order to admire China is the prospect of a China that supports an international, a functioning international mm-hmm. system. Vladimir Putin is in a very different place from that, as indeed is 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 uh, Jair Bolsonaro. And yet, Putin, you know, we should say that you know, uh, the image of Russia is is not rock bottom. It's in fact about in the middle, in the mid twenties, uh, yeah. in terms of the nation brands index and uh you know there are plenty of countries in the world that uh admire uh what russia does russian values Mm -hmm. that want to be educated in people want to be educated in russia uh you know and you know the the generators of admiration we know always strength is something that people admire uh wealth is something that people admire and and compared to many countries russia is both strong and uh, wealthy. What's missing is the most powerful uh, thing, which is, uh, mm. is it doing us good? Mm. And does it wish me well? As that's well. absolutely mm. right. And and, mm. and and I think that there have been the times where Russia has been most admired are the times when it was most mm. clearly seen to be um, working in the collective benefit. So think about the the positive feeling towards Russia during World War Two. Think about the admiration mm-hmm. of Russia when it was the country that was putting objects and people into into a orbit. Uh, that was, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think that those are the moments uh, that are most evoked in the in the nostalgia of Russian nationalism. You know, there's a reason why why the web platform and the vaccine are both called Sputnik. You know, they know what they need to uh, what they need to get to get back to. But those successes w- were genuinely for for the benefit of of everyone. Yes, but part of the Russian pain is that it never seems to endure, and uh, you know the, the 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 contribution that Russia made to the Allied cause in the Second World War, the vast number of lives, Russian lives that were sacrificed in the Second World War, seems to be so quickly erased um, from the from from the record in. Um, in in the West, and I think part of the part of the anger, part of the frustration with the West comes from this sense that 
Russia can go to phenomenal lengths to earn the respect that it desires and craves and feels that it deserves. And sometimes it even gets it, but it never seems to last. It just goes away. Now, we could devote easily another hour to discussing why that happens, but I think right. that's the uh, often the cause of the frustration. To go, to, But to go back to the role of the historian, this is somewhere where it, a, a contribution that historians can make is to say, hey, steady on here. There is a historic reality mm. and a historic contribution that has to be discussed and uh, understood and uh, included. And, you know, your World War II museum should have a gallery about Russia, right. uh, you know, it should, you know, and your commemoration should include Russian representation, and that is only right and proper given the um, sacrifices in, involved in, in in the war. Yes. Uh, well, uh, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People Places Power. I'm still Nick Cole, and I'm still Simon Anhold.